Ocean Calls. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this new series of Ocean Calls, the Euronews podcast making waves on the issues that matter to friends of the sea. I'm your host, Euronews science reporter Jeremy Wilkes. There's so much to learn about our oceans, and we have a wonderful list of stories to dive into this season, like underwater noises, both good and bad, a lively debate on attitudes towards sharks, the risks to undersea cables, and the true value of marine protected areas. And we're beginning somewhere beautiful and fragile. Majestic mountains of ice that moan and crackle as if they're alive. And then... Wow. <laughs> what was that? A beluga? A narwhal? It was the huge tail of a humpback whale disappearing into the blue-grey waters. We're in Greenland. I like very, very much the ice. And the sound, no sound. It's quiet. It's amazing. Tourists come to the Ilulisat Fjord in western Greenland from all over the world to marvel at this UNESCO site where the fresh ice meets the salty sea. But the next generations, our grandchildren, won't witness Greenland as these tourists experienced it because the ice is disappearing and the waters are changing. So what is really happening in Greenland? How is climate change impacting the oceans and wildlife? And will it change things for you and me? Here to discuss that question are my two guests, Sofia Ribeiro, a senior researcher in glaciology and climate at the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland. Hello, Sofia. Hello, Jeremy. And Mats Peter Heide Jurgensen, professor at the Greenland Institute of Natural Resources. Hello, Mats Peter. Hello, Jeremy. And at the end of the episode, you'll hear an incredible Arctic Ocean experience from British South African endurance swimmer and ocean advocate Lewis Pugh, the first person to complete a long-distance swim in every ocean of the world. Now, both of you go to Greenland quite regularly. Mans Peter, does it literally look different now compared to when you first went there a couple of decades ago? <laughs> a couple of decades I think we're talking more something like four decades. But uh, yes, uh, in many respects, we can see and feel the changes, uh, especially when it comes to the ice situation. That has changed a lot. And also with the occurrence of uh, new uh, species that comes from uh, the warmer part of the North Atlantic and that are new to the Arctic areas of Greenland. Can you describe what you sort of saw when you went there so 40 years ago? Well, 40 years ago, I had uh, some field uh, trips as a student in East Greenland, where we were a little bit more risk-tolerant than uh, I would be today. At that time, you could see huge masses of polar pack ice that was moving south along East Greenland at a high speed of like several kilometers per hour. It was moving south, and it was very dangerous. If you went out there and inflatable, you would be lost. But when I come there today, and I have had field work in East Greenland, the very same area for the past uh, 12 years, and... And, and every time when we pass in that area, at the same time of the year in August, we'll see open water and uh, very little uh, signs of any pack ice that is drifting. And you literally close. look across the horizon and you don't see icebergs or, or lumps of ice floating. It's virtually gone. Wow. From the area. So, so that's a big change we can see. 
That's an east green, and we also see uh, similar changes in, in west green, but maybe not as pronounced or so radical as what we see in east green. So, Phil, let me come to you. Do you see any difference between when you first went there, which is certainly not 40 years ago, I'm guessing, and when you and now when you go there? What, what do you see? The first time I was in Greenland was uh, only 12 years ago and we were in uh, southwest Greenland. So uh, my field work is typically on, on ships. We go on research vessels and we go and sail in the fjords or on the shelf where we collect water samples and sediment uh, core samples, etc. The most striking experience of being on Greenland was when we went to northeast Greenland a couple of years ago, and there we had been following very closely uh, satellite images of uh, sea ice to be able to see where we could potentially go. And the changes year per year was so rapid uh, that when we arrived there, we could actually reach all the way up to 81 degrees north because it was sea ice free. And that was not something we had seen in the satellite images we looked at. So this, these changes are rather rapid. How do you feel when you're there? Because I've been up in the Arctic Circle a couple of times. It's got a special atmosphere. What is, what's it like in Greenland? I'm, I'm always amazed by how huge it is, how the spatial scale there is something that is really hard to conceive uh, for us, how massive are the icebergs, uh, the ice sheet, the distances, and how diverse it is, actually, uh, specifically if we compare east and west. What is this difference between east and west? I mean, essentially, it's only the western part of Greenland that's really inhabited. One of the reasons why it's so little uh, uh, inhabited is also because of this ice that has uh, kind of dominated the coastline of East Greenland for, for thousands of years or more. Even in the periods where we had whalers and, and sealers in, in East Greenland, they never ventured into the coast because of this ice. And uh, if you go to southern Greenland, it's on the latitude of Oslo, you know, and there are trees and uh, green fields and, uh, and uh, cattle and horses. But if you go to North Greenland, there's hardly any vegetation. So it's a huge difference uh, also north-south-wise. Sophia, can you explain to us what's happening we were talking about you know greenland is melting but you know with your view uh, of a scientist your long-term view as well can you describe to us what's going on there generally for somebody who really doesn't uh, hasn't been following this what's going on in greenland now in terms of the greenland ice sheet itself it's uh, melting and we can see from uh, historical records and reconstructions that particularly in our century we see some massive change in runoff, so in how much uh, meltwater is leaving the ice sheet, uh, starting actually after the 1990s. The Arctic is warming at a rate that is at least three to four times faster than the global average. So when we talk about Paris Agreement or two degrees uh, warming, we are actually looking at six to eight degrees um, warming in the Arctic. And this is uh, due to to the simplification of global warming in the Arctic. We are seeing uh, quite drastic changes that are both uh, ice sheet melt, glaciers are also calving and melting at a faster rate, uh, and the sea ice is disappearing. So we are now looking into uh, potentially having a, a summer free from sea ice in the Arctic Ocean within a couple of decades from today. 
Is it the case that the precipitation has changed there, um, that you've gone from snow to rain, or is it you've actually just got less precipitation overall as well? Precipitation is one of the enigmas still. Uh, we know very little about precipitation. What we know is that there seems to be an increase in precipitation, but it's not only rain. Some of the, the changes we see are uh, changes in, in moist balance, for example, uh, a very interesting ecosystem that we study and that uh, Mespita has also been uh, working uh, intensely with is this pollinias that form on the west coast and the east coast of Greenland that are basically areas of open water surrounded by sea ice. And these are uh, also bringing moist into the surface. So the more open water we have, the more moist uh, comes um, and will change. So you mean that the, the air is, is more humid now? There's more humidity in the air? Exactly. Yeah. So these are, are affecting precipitation uh, by changing the amount of moisture in the air locally in the coastal regions. Did you know that one of the reasons for the increasing melt is the presence of blooming pigmented algae on the surface of Greenland's ice? It actually makes it slightly darker, meaning it absorbs more heat from the sun. Uh, Mas Peter, what's happening in the sea there? What, what's, what are the changes we can see in terms of the animals that are, that are there? Um, who's arriving? Who's leaving? Well, we can see, for instance, in this uh, area in southeast Greenland that we talked about, that is now uh, losing the monumental amount of sea ice it used to have. Uh, this area is now uh, open, has open water in the summertime, and a lot of uh, several North Atlantic species, more so-called boreal species that like to live in, 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 in water temperatures, they are moving in into this area. They would never venture into this ice-covered area before, but since now it's open water, they can go in there and they can feed on fish stocks that are also uh, moving towards uh, the north and along the coast there. For can, instance, can you give us some there. examples then of, of what's sort of coming in now that yeah. you didn't see before? Yeah, a couple of obvious examples that uh, that anybody goes to there could, could see is, for instance, a large number of fin whales or humpback whales, because you can easily see them. It, it's a new thing that we have thousands of fin whales and thousands of humpback whales on the coast of East Greenland. They haven't been there for the past... Uh, 120 years since the first uh, recordings of life from that area was made. And they're turning up because there's sources of food there that weren't there before, right? Or because the yeah. ice is gone? Is it kind of, or is it both? It's both, both effects because at the same time as the ice is also is disappearing, the uh, sea temperature is also increasing as it is in, all over the North Atlantic. So it's an inflow of, uh, of warm water that has also triggered the inflow of new fish species. Of uh, Some of them might, is of extreme commercial interest. For instance, the, the mackerel suddenly appeared in, in East Greenland uh, around uh, 2012 and, and gave rise to a huge uh, fishery that was a, of uh, great economic importance. They're now gone from the area, but they, they moved to other parts of the North Atlantic. But after the mackerel also came a bluefin tuna, than where we had the first catches here in 2012. So you've got bluefin tuna that's, coming up and swimming around that, Greenland. Yeah, you can wow. see that sounds completely ridiculous, I agree. But that you can see that, uh, uh, that's an illustration of, how, of the magnitude of the changes we are experiencing in this area. I think uh, most people would uh, say, if I said there are tunas in Greenland, they would say, you're lying. But, I was going to uh, say, how, uh, did, that, how did people react? I mean, how did you react when you saw that? You must have thought it was crazy. Completely surprised. And uh, and it's it's unprecedented because they have never neither mackerel or tuna have been seen in Greenland in the, 
in the past. So you've talked about these animals that are arriving there, these species that we now see in southern Greenland that weren't there. What about those who were there before who loved the ice? Where have they gone? Well, we can see that, uh, for instance, the, the narwhal, that is a typical uh, Arctic species that doesn't like water temperatures above two degrees and definitely uh, avoid all the all areas with Atlantic water. They are moved north and they are, they are no longer fountains in southeast Greenland. And also the walrus that uh, could live there, uh, it's not so temperature dependent, but it's, it likes to drift on, this, on the sea ice. They are also in, uh, reduced in numbers because there's less ice that's drifting along that coast. So have those populations really suffered or have they just kind of moved house? We don't really know if, if they just disappeared or if they have moved north because at the same time as there's been climate change, there's also been hunting of these animals and uh, to some extent that has uh, exaggerated the situation for especially for the narwhals. But uh, at least in this very southern part of, uh, of East Greenland, the narwhals, they're gone and it's definitely because of uh, the climate change. I mean, you can imagine an area where you have a typical Arctic species as an owl swimming around. At the same time, there are dolphins moving in because there are also lots of dolphins now on, on this East Greenland coast and killer whales and pilot whales. And that's, uh, they, they don't, these species, they don't live together normally in any other parts of the world. So just by the simple uh, kind of... Uh, contact or observation of uh, dolphins in the area, you know that something has changed dramatically. Who's the boss in that sort of scenario? Because you've got a lot of top predators and <laughs> they wouldn't like to mix. Um, who comes out on top? Yeah, of course, the, the killer whale is uh, the boss. But but, uh, but the top predators are there anyway because of the, the fish stocks and, uh, and the killer whales. They will go after minke whales, for instance, or seals. Um, and also now. Um, question to both of you, how permanent, I suppose, are these changes that have come in now? Is this the new normal? I think that it's uh, quite irreversible, uh, that this is uh, something that uh, will not uh, go back. And I guess Sophia also has an opinion about that. Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I think, for example, ice sheets are extremely slow at responding. So, for example, for the Greenland ice sheet, we already know that uh, regardless of our emission pathways, regardless of what we do from now on, there's already a committed loss of equivalent to about 0.3 meters of global sea level rise. We've put something in motion that we cannot uh, very quickly stop. The Arctic sea ice as such, it's actually one of the components that is most rapidly in terms of historical timescales responding. So there's still a, a chance, uh, according to the latest uh, IPCC reports and, and model projections, that if we were to stay uh, under uh, two degrees global warming, we might keep some of the multi-year sea ice and we might be able to actually recover it relatively quickly. But for the ice sheet, it's a whole other story. I mean, the, the ice sheet is still in some ways responding to the last uh, ice age and it will be responding to this anthropogenic warming for decades and centuries to come. But do you think that the, uh, that the ice we have seen in East Greenland, uh, that has a chance to come back? If we keep the two degrees increase in global warming, uh, probably not, yeah. But if we stay below two degrees and then slowly start decreasing the, the CO2 uh, concentrations in the atmosphere, then sea ice could actually recover rather quickly. 
What's actually happening? You talked earlier about this fresh water that's coming off from the land, from the glaciers melting away. How is that impacting the marine environment just around the coast of Greenland? So the glaciers that are terminating on the sea, so they are marine terminating, when they are melting from below, this fresh water that is being released into the ocean is actually coming at depth. And because it's fresh water and it's lighter, it will move up. And as it moves up uh, towards the surface of the ocean, it brings with it, it entrains some of the bottom waters. And these bottom waters are very rich in nutrients that are critical for the phytoplankton. Uh, that is basically the, the, the base of the food webs in the, in the system. When we have land terminating glaciers, so glaciers that uh, are sending fresh water towards the surface of the ocean, then the effect can actually be the opposite because you'll create a lead of fresh water at the top of the ocean that prevents this mixing and the meltwater is typically not very rich uh, in nutrients, so this will limit uh, productivity. So there are some areas, in fact, where the um, situation for, for, for nature, for wildlife, for biodiversity is actually improving because of the melting. Is that what you're saying? There are areas where we see an increase in uh, productivity where marine terminating glaciers are melting, yes. If we look ahead uh, and we imagine that these glaciers will retreat onto land, then this effect will be turned off. We've sometimes in the past and in previous seasons of Ocean Calls talked about really significant changes in the whole Atlantic system with this kind of conveyor belt of heat from the equator going up towards the north, that that might be slowing down or changing. What evidence can we see f about that around Greenland at the moment? Well, one thing we are worried about is, uh, of course, that there'll be complete uh, shutdown of this uh, meridional ore turning circulation, as it's called, this uh, this conveyor belt effect where the Gulf current is moving north and uh, dipping down in the deep water and returning. And that's what uh, generates such a nice climate in, uh, in northern Euro Europe. And if that stops, the climate will change in northern Europe and be a lot colder. There are some statisticians that predict that that could happen within the next uh, 30, 40 years. Yeah, when, when you see a change quite rapidly, you're talking about a sort of a change that could happen in, in my lifetime. Yeah, we've reached a tipping point where there could be a shutdown of this uh, overturning circulation. When, when you look much further back into the past of Greenland, which you're doing, with, and I'm sure some of the researchers around you are doing as well, what can you learn about possible futures of Greenland, actually, by looking a long way into the past? I am very interested in a period of time called the Holocene Thermal Maximum, so which was about um, eight to 6,000 years ago, depending where you are in Greenland, where the temperatures were higher than our uh, pre-industrial uh, baseline and where the ice sheet was smaller than today. So in many parts of Greenland, we can see traces of the ice having been retreated more than it is today. Something that is very uh, challenging to reconcile, though, is that we are now at, what, 420 ppm uh, CO2. And if we want to find a past analogue for, for this type of CO2 levels in the atmosphere, then we have to go all the way back to 3.6 million years ago. And sea levels at that time with the CO2 concentration that we've got now would be, what, 15, 20 metres or more higher than they are now. Yes, they were much higher than today, yeah. yeah. 
Did you know that Greenland is actually the world's largest island, with almost 80% of the landmass covered by an ice cap? It has a population of just over 56,000 people and has very few roads outside the towns, meaning most people get around by boat, plane, helicopter, a snowmobile, or dog sled. Uh, we've been preparing this podcast and having discussions with various different people, and, and some of them have been talking about some of the economic opportunities actually in Greenland as well. And I think it would be interesting to talk about that because, of course, we can see that there's a change in the fisheries. There has been a, a boom in the fisheries there as well. We also know that Europe is looking for different sources of resources. It wants to try and be independent from um, from China or from Russia for particular kinds of things. And Greenland might be the sort of place where they could be able to extract those. What do you think about that and the process that's underway of melting could make that more possible, a little bit more cost effective to do? Uh, Mads Peter, what, what are your thoughts on those kinds of issues? Well, I think uh, the, uh, the most immediate uh, change in the economy will be related to the fishery. And since uh, Greenland has always had such an exposed position on, in the ocean, there's also a high degree of adaptability in the population that lives in Greenland. They've already done that to a large degree with the, with the mackerel uh, resources that wasn't in, in East Greenland for a while. And they've done that in the past also with the Atlantic cod that used to be very abundant in West Greenland. It's not really abundant at the moment now, but if, uh, if it came back in the amount of, uh, of biomass they had in the in the 60s, then it would be the world's largest fishery for, for Atlantic cod, and that's a very valuable fish. So it'll have a tremendous economical uh, impacts on society. On the other hand, you know, we will, some of the ability to hunt species on the ice or travel on the ice and hunt very uh, Arctic-related species like uh, Nowels and belugas and walls and boilways, they will probably be reduced. I want to come to our conclusion now, and I'm thinking, for me here in Europe, and for our other listeners here here in Europe, what are the real implications for us of Greenland melting away? I think the, the biggest risk is the uh, sea level rise, but also the risk of the uh, shutdown of the uh, Gulf Current system in the North Atlantic, uh, to make it quite simple. So the sea level rise and then this uh, possibility that this nice heat pump from yeah. uh, equator up to the Arctic should stop and then in which case the weather actually gets colder for me here in Europe. Yeah, you'll feel it directly. I was just the other way reading uh, this study that was linking, you know, melting Greenland with risk of malaria in West Africa versus South Africa as the rain belt uh, shifts, you know, towards South, etc. So I think that at this point... We should not think about uh, our massive polar ice sheet as something remote. I think we are uh, really changing the climate system in a way that we cannot at this point predict. You know, there will be impacts uh, that are much beyond the sea level rise and, uh, and thermohaline circulation. That's interesting. You're talking about basically the melting of Greenland fundamentally being part of a huge change in weather patterns that we have around our planet. Exactly as well as the sea level rise, which we know is coming, whatever happens, because that's locked in with the warming that's already in place because the reaction time is slow. And then also possible changes that might mean it actually ends up getting colder, ironically, in Europe than it was before. Um, when you listen to all of that, Sophia, how do you feel? How do you feel? 
uh, I'm I'm concerned, <laughs> but uh, I was I, something that I think is quite important is that I'm I'm kind of tired of hearing uh, the slogan "Save the Planet." I think that's a, a grave misconception of of where our concerns should be. I think we should really shift our focus to you know save humanity or, or save humanity's ideals or lifestyle or if we want to keep um, ideals as, as justice and equality and freedom and health and some sort of balance with nature, then we need to shift our focus. I'm concerned uh, mainly uh, when I see people detaching themselves from, uh, from what's happening um, with nature, from what's happening with biodiversity, and they feel that they have a choice to care or not about it. Uh, we don't. We don't have a choice. Uh, Mas Peter? No, I, I agree. Uh, I think uh, the the planet will survive, and, and nature will also survive. But uh, the thing is that uh, that both the planet and the nature around us will uh, transform into something that is less agreeable to human life and le and less uh, acceptable for our current culture. Well, thank you. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and I feel like I've built up a picture of what Greenland looks like and what it's like for the animals there as well. So thank you, Sophia Ribeiro, from the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland and Mads-Peter Heide-Jorgensen from the Greenland Institute of Natural Resources. Thanks very much for being with us on Ocean Calls. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. And now let's sail straight into Ocean Favourites, the part of the podcast when a well-known person tells us all about their favourite ocean experience. And this time we'll hear from Lewis Pugh, an endurance swimmer, an ocean advocate, an extraordinary athlete who swam everywhere from a glacial lake on Mount Everest to the coast of Antarctica. And here is his tale of swimming across the North Pole. My name is Lewis Pugh. I'm an endurance swimmer and the United Nations patron of the oceans. Come round about 2003, four, I felt the need to stand up and talk about the health of our planet and what we were doing to our oceans. I was seeing our oceans change and change very, very quickly. And, and so I decided to to do a really big swim, and that was to sail all the way to the North Pole and do a swim there. So, you know, this is a place which has been frozen over for millennia. But I wanted to go there, actually to the North Pole, and do a swim across an open patch of sea to graphically show world leaders, this is what is now happening to our planet. You can even swim across the North Pole. And we need to take this very, very seriously. The water is minus 1.7 degrees centigrade, so it's below zero. And uh, no human had ever done a swim in anywhere close to this temperature before, so we just didn't know what was going to happen. But I, I, I was so determined to do this swim. I, I remember standing on the edge of the ice at the North Pole and, and looking out over this dark black water. And I had the worst possible thought you could have. I thought to myself, if things go horribly wrong now, how long is it going to take for my frozen corpse to sink to four and a half kilometers to the bottom of the ocean? Which is about the worst possible thought you can have. 
And just to explain, I'm not going to do this swim in a wetsuit or a dry suit. I'm doing this swim in just a speedo, a cap and goggles. Alrighty. The first thing that strikes you is just how cold it is. Chilling winds. You're at 90 degrees north. Everything around you is south. You're standing at the top of the world. I'm standing on the sea ice. I'm looking out across this open patch of sea. It's completely black. The Russians call the Arctic Ocean the Black Ocean. I've swum in blue water and brown water and green water, almost in red water sometimes, but nothing which is completely black. And when you start swimming across the North Pole, I could see my hand move past my goggle. And then I take a full stroke. And as I take that stroke, my hand virtually disappears. That's how dark it is. It is the most hostile place you could imagine. You go through these sort of stages during the swim. The, 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 the first is fear. Or not even fear, terror. You dive in. And then within a, within a minute or two, it's gone from fear to regret. And, and, <laughs> and then you ask, you're asking yourself why on earth you are here. And then it moves from regret to pain. And then it's getting colder and colder and colder. And the cold grips itself around you like a vice. And so what you really, it's very, very difficult to take a proper swimming stroke. You start beginning to slap the water. Your muscles are not operating properly. And then it moves from this pain to utter desperation. And then the swim is over, you get out the water and you dry yourself off quickly and then you get yourself warm and then you get a hot chocolate inside you and it moves from desperation to relief. So I undertake swims in, in places where I can shine a light on what is happening to these places and, and then try and get them protected afterwards. My thanks to Lewis Pugh for that moving story of courage and determination. The Ocean Calls podcast is created by ocean lovers here at Euronews for ocean fans around the world. And I'm your host, Euronews science reporter Jeremy Wilkes. And this series is produced by my colleagues, Naira Dablashian and Natalia Olsner. The theme music is by Gabrielle Dalmasso. Our editor-in-chief is Sophie Claudet. The Ocean Calls podcast is made possible by the European Commission's Directorate General for Maritime Affairs and Fisheries. You can find out more about our guests by following the links in the description. To create this episode, we used audio from AFP Video Reports. You can listen to Ocean Calls on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. For more information, go to our website, euronews.com, and while you're there, please have a look at Ocean, our sister TV series. It's beautiful. Head over to euronews.com ocean. And follow world news from a European perspective on euronews.com. 